Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us go to God in prayer, even as we prepare our hearts to listen to the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Let us pray. Sovereign Father, we commit this time to you. We ask, O oh God, that even as we read through your word, as we reflect on its impact in the lives of the early church back then, and also for us today, Help us, O oh God, through your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see who you are, what is close to your heart, what the gospel means for the nations of the world throughout all times. Speak, O oh God, for your children are ready and your children need you so that we can see you clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning... I am continuing in the sermon series taken from the book of Acts. Uh, Previously, I stopped at the end of the book of Acts, chapter 6, I believe, uh, concerning the ministry uh, of, sorry, not not 6, the ministry of Philip, that means Acts chapter 8, the ministry of Philip at, uh, at Samaria. And today, we're actually going to fast forward uh, two chapters going into Acts chapter 10, uh, whereby I will be expounding from uh, this passage concerning God's work in the life of Peter and the gospel being proclaimed to Cornelius and his household. Okay, so uh, we've already had the New Testament reading from Acts chapter 10 uh, read to us by Brother Zachary. So thank you for doing that, Zachary. And uh, right now, we will go straight into the passage proper. All right? Now, this passage begins with the introduction of a man named Cornelius. So if you have your Bibles with you, keep it open to Acts chapter 10. And we see that this man is firstly, and this is significant because of the flow thus far in terms of how far the gospel has reached different groups of people we find that Cornelius is firstly not a Jew. Obviously, isn't it? It's a Gentile. Um, And let's find out a little bit about him. He's a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Even though he's not a Jew, in verse 2, we see that he is a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So we know that... um, Based on the evidence given to us in verse 1b and verse 2, this man, even though he's not born a Jew, he actually worships the God of the Jews. Uh, Stopping short of being called uh, a proselyte, uh, meaning he's being admitted fully into uh, the worship of Judaism. Uh, Stopping short of that, he's not. He's uh, someone who, however, worships the God of Yahweh, uh, of, of the Jews. He is someone who gives alms generously to people who is a man of prayer. And it's interesting that this man is mentioned by name several times throughout the book of Acts. And not just by the, by the editor or the author of this book. He is addressed by name by God himself, at least through his representative, the angel. And and this is very significant for our reflection thus far because we have seen that from the very beginning of the book of Acts, the gospel message from the very outset in chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, isn't it, that beginning with Jerusalem, the gospel, 
will spread through them to Judea and Samaria. And we've already covered Samaria in the previous sermon in uh, Acts chapter 8, yeah, particularly verse uh, 4 all the way to verse 25. But we see now that it's spreading even beyond Jewish regions, even beyond the Samaritan region. It is now reaching that of Caesarea, uh, probably named after Caesar himself. And it reaches, at least in the context of this whole chapter, it reaches a Gentile. So it's very, very intentional. The way that the writer, uh, Dr. Luke, actually presents not only chronologically what's happening, but thematically how the spread of the gospel is actually the work of God, whether it is through the hands of the apostles voluntarily or even despite persecution, which leads to the spreading of many Christians beyond Jerusalem throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, and then now Caesarea itself. Okay, so this is one thing we need to understand, that this is an introduction of how the gospel reaches the Gentile. And this man is already ripe for the harvest, if I can put it that way, because he already knows about the God of the Jews. He worships the God of the Jews. He does good works in the context of Judaism. He's a man of prayer. And being a man of prayer, God actually responds to his prayer. We see that, isn't it, in, in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in to say to him, Cornelius. It's interesting that I said yeah, that this Gentile, who is very much not even accepted as a Jew despite his belief in the God, but he stops short of being a proselyte, a full convert. We find that God, however, does not in any way sidestep him. In fact, God addresses him by his own name, his own personal name. This angel addresses him as Cornelius. Of course, the reaction is uh, typical of most uh, angelic visitations throughout the Gospels and even in the Old Testament, isn't it? His reaction in verse 4 is quite obvious. He stared at him, this angel, in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your arms have descended as a memorial before God. Try to put yourself in Cornelius' shoe at this moment. Not part of the Jewish religion, yet fully aware of the fact and probably believing in the fact that God has revealed himself through this nation. And he participates in faith, at least in personal faith and in practicing good works. And now to be addressed not only personally, but to be acknowledged that his prayers, despite being an outsider of first century Judaism, his prayers and his arms, his givings for good works to support the poor have ascended as a memorial before God, that God acknowledges it. And this is now a personal message from him from a personal address to an acknowledgement of his pious life to a message of ministry. We see in verse 5, isn't it? Immediately after that, the angel of God says to him, Now, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And we will come to this as to why uh, Peter's lodging with a man, uh, not only be called by the same name in certain respects, but whose occupation is that of a tanner, 
is, is significant for our reflection in this chapter today. We'll come to it very soon in the next paragraph. Anyway, this message, personal message for Cornelius, acknowledged by God, addressed personally by name, is that he has to send for this Peter. And it's mentioned further on that when the angel spoke, who spoke to him departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So the, the response is not only that of urgency, the response is that of commitment. You know? An angelic being appeared to him. Can you imagine that? As an outsider, this angelic being who addresses him by name, acknowledges his worship of God, of the true God, acknowledges his, his life of, of, of charity and religiosity, and now says, I have a personal message for you. Send for Peter and he will tell you what to do. And he responds immediately and he sends this group of people who are loyal to him to Joppa. This is where Simon Peter is. Now Joppa is still very much within the region of Judea. But as we will see uh, significantly, not just geographically, but from a thematic aspect, Peter now is going to be called out of Judea, up northwest, still by the coast in that sense, to Caesarea, the land of the Gentiles. From here, we move on. From Cornelius, we move on to Peter. God has already worked in Cornelius' life. God has already ministered in Cornelius' life and there's more to come for him because it will lead to salvation in Jesus Christ very soon. However, now we want to switch to the next scene in verse 9. The next day, if you have your Bibles with you, as they were on their journey approaching the city, this is the, the group that Cornelius has sent to look for Peter somewhere in Joppa. Now at that same time, as they were on their way, as it would have it, Peter went up on the housetop. You know, he's living with this guy called Simon the Tanner. All right. And he's going up on the housetop about the sixth hour. It's about 12 noon to pray. Became hungry, wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, he fell into a trance. And as Cornelius saw the angel, a divine revelation, Peter, whilst not seeing an angel, receives a vision isn't it? And here's what it looked like in verse 11. Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now we will see how this vision that Peter experiences actually has a very clear and straightforward meaning. We will see it unfold as we go through the rest of the passage. But one thing that I want to point out here that is significant to our subsequent reflection is that this sheet that comes down contains not only unclean animals, and by that word unclean or common, uh, we actually point to the Jewish regulations in that they are not supposed to eat certain type of animals as food. But here in verse 12, we find that there were all kinds of animals. Therefore, it's not just animals that were unclean through the eyes of the Orthodox Jews practicing kosher kind of meals. But it means it would have included even those deemed clean as well. 
This is significant for us, isn't it? Because as we will see further down the passage, there is a coming together of both Jew and Gentile in the same house, in fellowship, in the union of faith in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this vision laid before Peter, therefore, is actually that trailer to what is to come, isn't it? It's almost like a movie trailer to what is going to come. In that all of these animals, clean and unclean, when you talk about unclean, we're not, just, we're not saying literally unclean, we're saying at least through the eyes of the Jews in, in terms of what they've been told way back then in their Mosaic law. For them, there were animals in this vision for Peter that were considered unclean. And we'll come to this later because it is not just uh, implying that the uh, hesitation of the Jews back then to associate with Gentiles was racist in nature. It's not outrightly racist. There was an issue there which they had misunderstood concerning the Mosaic law. We will come to that later. But the first thing that we understand is this, that the sheet laid down with animals consists of both common yeah, and unclean animals and as well as clean animals. So there's a mixture there. Okay? So this happened three times, and as Peter was inwardly perplexed, we see that in verse 17, isn't Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Whilst this is happening, God is, is orchestrating things, if I can, you can phrase it this way, that the timing of it is just perfect. You know, that as he started receiving the vision, the people were already entering the city on the way, approaching the city in verse 9, isn't it? As he went through the vision, they were already in the city. As he finished the vision, the people have now arrived. It's interesting, isn't it? In verse 17, that's what it says. As Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision. So as all these things happening, God is orchestrating events. The Spirit tells him, these men have reached. They are at your doorstep. It says that in verse 19b. It says, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down, accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. It is highly significant as it is intentional that Peter sees the vision of this great sheep with all the animals, clean and unclean, whereby he immediately says, as he would if he were an orthodox Jew, no, no, no. Uh, even though he was called to eat, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. We see that in verse 13. But Peter says immediately, no, I will not eat anything unclean. But the Lord was pointing him to something greater. That don't call things that God has made clean, unclean. And as the people come, as they reach his doorstep, as they call out for him, the Spirit tells him, they are here. Go down, accompany them, without hesitation. What this word means, hesitation, it means that don't be apprehensive, don't worry, but also don't make distinction. That means don't try yeah, to make a distinction as to whether they are clean or you should go with them. Why? He says, for I have sent them. And this is highly important for us because in light of Cornelius' experience, an outsider of Jewish century Judaism, first century Judaism, an outsider of first century Judaism, he's not only called by name, he's not only acknowledged by God, he's been told something that there's a message in store specifically for him from the God of the Jews. And now he is acknowledged indirectly whereby God himself tells Peter, 
I have sent them. This is not just a voluntary act of piety. Whatever Cornelius has been asked to do, he does in line with God's plan. And so Peter now is being made known of the fact that don't make distinction, don't hesitate. They are not Jews, sure, but I have sent them. I have caused things to happen in such a way, so seamlessly it overlaps the timing for this greater purpose but one which you yourself must be like Cornelius and those three men. Follow through. Do not hesitate. Do not make a distinction. And so Peter obe- obeys, isn't it, in verse one, 21. Then he clarifies and they tell them, tell him in summary form in verse 22, they say, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. And interestingly, do you know what he does? He invites them in to be his guest. Uh, now, mind you, he's staying in someone else's house. So that's quite interesting. Uh, nevertheless, he invites them in to be his guest. And then the next day we see, isn't it? He rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So now, not only do we have this very unusual, but uh, something that goes against convention of Gentiles and Jews living in the same house overnight, we see them now traveling together. And then we see in verse 24, on the following day, they entered Caesarea. For Peter, firstly... Let's just take one step back. We mentioned at the beginning that he's living with this Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea, isn't it? We see that this is actually mentioned also at the end of chapter 9, verse 43, before our chapter here. And uh, for those of you who may not know this, uh, a tanner back then was someone who actually would uh, take the carcass of animals, strip their skin, treat it, prepare it to become leather for, for subsequent use in the like as, to, as, as what leather goods are used for. And it was, and this is, where we, this is the point, eh? it was considered to be an unclean profession in the eyes of the Jews. Uh, Peter in his vision reacted very quickly, isn't it? When God said, rise, kill whatever you see there, all that mixture of animals clean and unclean. And so we said, no, 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 eh? I, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Somewhat hypocritical because whilst he wasn't ingesting anything that was unclean, at least not yet, or at least not symbolically yet, we find, however, in his lodgings, he was staying with someone who engaged in a profession that was considered unclean. Could it be that this staying in Simon's house was that building preparation of his heart to receive this message? That the entrenched worldview that he had concerning what is truly clean and unclean and what the gospel message means was now slowly stripping away all these entrenched but mistaken perspectives concerning the other nations around them and what God has in store for them. And that actually sets the ground, is it? Because from there we see that it builds up from staying in an unclean man's house, probably still a Jew, Nevertheless, to receiving a vision, seeing his reaction, and then receiving God's rebuke, as constructive and instructive as it is. It is a rebuke. Don't call 
Anything common what God has made clean, we see that in verse 15. And then right now, to the receiving of Gentiles, to the receiving of them even into the house of a Jew, to stay overnight, and then to travel together. And then it sets the scene finally in verse 24. They entered Caesarea. They have now gone beyond Judea. They are going into Caesarea. Gentile territory, some might say. We see now that God has orchestrated things in such a way that Cornelius, the Gentile, called by name by God, acknowledged by God, given a specific message to God, he encounters Peter, the apostle of Christ. The apostle who not only led the exposition and evangelism from the outpouring of God's Spirit onto all the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, who not only conferred the Holy Spirit on the people of Samaria, and we've really reflected on how that is so significant, but now the same Apostle Peter of Christ, who's given the keys to the kingdom, this Apostle now lays the groundwork for a frontier of the gospel whereby it will cross even to the Gentiles. And we will see this beautiful work at play right now. So, you see in verse 24, he meets with Cornelius. Cornelius was anticipating in such a de- to a such a degree that he called all his fa- family members who were around and his relatives and close friends, isn't it? Verse, verse 24. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. So, uh, as pious as he was, he was of course misguided too. Uh, but Peter immediately lifts him up and says, stand up, I, I too am a man. And this is significant because not only is he denouncing or renouncing any element of, of, of divine worship on a man for himself, even though we know the miracles that have been following him thus far, but he is also in a very significant way admitting, not just acknowledging, admitting that Cornelius and him are actually same. We are all humans in the sight of God. Nobody should be worshipped, no matter how great God has used them. So again, this is, this is actually, as we will come to a conclusion later, that this ministry to Cornelius and his household as they come to faith of G- in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit's power is also as much uh, a molding of Peter's heart in the way of Christ, his Lord. And we will come to that later at the end. So Peter now is increasingly cognizant and aware of the fact that the gospel will indeed strip through all those layers of of discrimination in terms of access to God by way of race or culture. And so what does he do? He firstly goes into the house, he talks with Cornelius, and he found the entire gathering there waiting for him And interestingly, the first thing he says that is recorded here is this. In verse 28, he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Now, for us as Malaysians, uh, depending on your experience, of course, like for me, uh, obviously, it would be something that I find similar to my own experience when I was relating to some of my friends uh, who could not eat food uh, that is considered... uh, uh, not kosher, isn't it? Uh, I remember when I even had a tuition teacher come to my house. Uh, we couldn't even serve him a cup of water because for him, he would be worried that it may have been tainted, you know, with certain type of meat that was not kosher, obviously not halal. 
And so we had to prepare every time he came for my class for to teach, we had to prepare a packet drink because at least we knew that it was not washed with our plates and forks and spoons. So there was always a sense of apprehension, a sense of being so distant. And, and also, sadly, the, for those that I've also associated with uh, who had this kind of practice, they would often regard people like me of my background as not being so clean. So it's not just about being religiously unclean, but probably hygiene-wise, you're also not very clean because you eat this kind of food. So that was, that was the, the stigma attached to us from their view. But for Peter, when he says this, um, the origins of such a separation actually is not necessarily racist because if you understand when they were told not to eat in certain food, not to participate with certain groups of people, it was not so much because they were of that race per se and therefore they're dirty and they're not clean. It was because of what they believed in, because of what it entailed. That's how the people of God were supposed to be set apart. Different values, different norms, different principles, different way of worship of God. No, and of course, when we talk about the, the food that we were supposed to eat, especially very much in terms of the wilderness experience, it's coloured by all of that. Sadly, by the time of Christ, by the time of the early church, many of the Jews had actually distorted all of these unique traits of God's people as set apart and made it a, an, uh, a superior complex towards those around them. They thought they were better human beings. They were thought, you know, they, they thought that since they're people of God and all of these different, different rules and principles, they were indeed one level higher than all the other nations around them. You know, and, and therefore it led to blatant discrimination and racism. And Peter acknowledges it, even though the origins of such a practice was not intended to be that way. The nation of Israel back then, in the time of Moses, as they occupied the promised land, was to be a shining light to the nations to invite them to come in to participate in the kingdom of God under the rule of the Lord of Yahweh. Uh, which of course they, Israel failed spectacularly. Lah. But what was such a beautiful project became distorted into a racist propaganda uh, by the time of first century Jews. But here we see Peter's eyes are being opened uh, as the apostle Paul, uh, known as Saul in the chapter before, chapter nine, had his eyes literally opened. Peter's spiritual eyes were now being opened. And he said this, you know, after he said, you yourselves know in verse 28, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. No hesitation, no, no making of distinction without any objection. And then he just came. I asked them, why you sent for me? Peter's journey is actually quite beautiful. Because he is being asked to minister even as he is being molded. Let me make that statement again. Peter's journey with the Lord in this ministry is quite beautiful because even as he is being asked to minister the gospel message, he himself is slowly coming to terms to what the gospel message entails. Uh, we will come to this later and what it means for us. You know, sometimes we think that we need to be the perfect model of, of, of a Christian. We need to be like a walking Jesus before we can tell people about Jesus. No, the grace given to all of us is that as we yield ourselves before Christ, he works in us even as we seek to faithfully witness to others. It doesn't have to be fully ready, 100% when you can go. There's no such thing anyway. And Peter realizes this. And importantly, Peter realizes the truth that the gospel is indeed for everyone, 
not only for the Jews, not only for the Jews in Jerusalem, not only from the Jews, for the Jews in the diaspora who had come to Jerusalem at the time, not only for the Samaritans who were their ancient enemies, who were described as half-breeds, as heretics, but now for the outsider itself, the Gentiles. The gospel is for them too. In any case, let me just give to you very quickly, as he asks for the reason as to why he was sent, Cornelius explains very quickly in verses 30 to 33. And in response, Peter and says this, as he, as he hears the fact that God had not only personally called Cornelius by name, had acknowledged his life and piety, but also has given him a personal message by asking Peter to come to extend the hand of fellowship in the gospel. Peter responds to this in verse 34 and he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. If firstly Peter said, now I know that I should not call anything or anyone common or unclean. He goes on to say, ah, the implication of that, if indeed we all stand before God as equals, then the implication is that God shows no partiality. In regard to the gospel message, this could not be any clearer. And we will come to its application later. We will come to it later. But God shows no partiality in regards to giving of his grace. Yes, it started with Israel. Yes, it started with the people of God. But as the people of God in the Old Testament understood it, their experience of being blessed as engaging in the covenant was so that they would bless the nations. And here is the same. God doesn't change. As it started with Jesus, the true son of Israel, the totally obedient one who is now glorified, it now spreads not only to the Jews in Jerusalem, not only to the diaspora Jews, not only to the Samaritans now, to the Gentiles. God shows no partiality, but in every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And we'll come to this later as to how this is so significant for us as well as we relate to others who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but who are pious, who seek after the God of truth, the God of the universe, the God of in Jesus Christ. So Peter goes on to explain who this Jesus is. He, he, he also acknowledges that these people already know about the gospel message to a certain degree. They know about the events that led to it concerning Jesus Christ, who was anointed with the Holy Spirit, with power, who did good works as well. And this is something that would have uh, been something that would have resonated with Cornelius. And his good works were not trivial because they were good works and healings that were setting people free from oppression, from the devil. And he also went on to affirm that you know of this and you know of the fact that we are witnesses. So Peter not only clarifies the events leading up to Jesus' public ministry, his death and his resurrection, later on we'll see that, but he does it as a first-hand eyewitness. This is where his ministry comes to the fore. The apostleship of Peter is not only for the Jews to tell them that we are eyewitnesses, but now to Gentiles that we have seen the Lord. And this is what it says, isn't it? In verse 39, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So, 
You see, there's a familiar pattern, isn't it, of how Peter engages and says, yes, we, Jesus, this Jesus whom you heard of did really die on the tree. And the symbol, symbolism for that is if you know Old Testament scriptures, as these guys were listening, even though they're Gentiles would have known, especially Cornelius, to die on a tree means you're cursed by God. You know? That means that's it, that's the end. But Peter doesn't end there. He says, but God raised him from the dead, made him to appear. And it's not just an appearance to one or two, but to all the apostles to all that he had chosen as witnesses. And it was not just for a moment, it was over a period of 40 days. And what's more, he, this resurrected Jesus ate and drank with them. There was true restorative and yet a transformational fellowship, which now Peter was going to extend. Well, not Peter, which now the Holy Spirit was going to extend. Because as we see later, the Holy Spirit actually interrupts Peter's sermon, isn't it? I don't know how, how many of us, including myself, would feel about having our sermon interrupted. But if it were interrupted by God, the Holy Spirit, we would gladly just fade into the background and let God do the work as opposed to using our flawed lips. But here, Peter points this out. That in his coming to the house of Cornelius, he implies that it is a God-orchestrated event. Because his apostleship now extends to Caesarea, to the Gentiles. And he says in verse 42, he commanded us, this Jesus chosen by God, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Now, this would have been so meaningful to Cornelius because Cornelius, despite being an outsider of first century Judaism, knew the scriptures. He prayed to the God of these scriptures. He, he served this God of these scriptures. And now he sees the culmination of the purpose of these scriptures through the hands and through the fellowship and through the words of this Apostle Peter. And before Peter gets interrupted by the Holy Spirit, Peter actually is able to deliver the gospel message to them. The culmination of the Old Testament scripture, the culmination and purpose of Judaism was to point to the Messiah. And he was now the recipient of it with the hand of fellowship extended to him by a Jew, even though he's a Gentile, in his house as a Gentile. It is really beautiful. I just really hope that you all who are listening can see this. All of these boundaries and breakthroughs are taking place. Sometimes for us, we may say like, yeah, isn't that what the gospel is supposed to do? But imagine if you are living in that kind of cultural uh, oppression, in that kind of discrimination. To hear that God loves you, this God of the Jews, despite the Jews not being very good witnesses because of how they had understood their their holiness and their laws, to see that the God of these laws, however, reaches out to you, calls you by name, acknowledges your worship and says, I'm going to give you Jesus. He is the one that you've been waiting for. What a beautiful occasion that would have been in his life for Cornelius. And we see, isn't it, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Hang on, if you've been reading the book of Acts thus far, you would be thinking, hey, what's going on? If you are more of a process person who says that you have to always comply by the sequence of events, you'd be thinking, hey, this guy's not even baptized yet. This guy didn't even confess Jesus Christ yet, but the Holy Spirit fell on them already? That's the beautiful thing about God, the Holy Spirit, isn't it? He doesn't wait for us, for our outward processes. He doesn't actually have to wait for us. He looks at the heart. 
And the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And what was the reaction? Well, yeah, the reaction of those who accompanied Peter, still Jews yeah, from Joppa, the believers among the circumcised, those were very, very particular about probably they would probably been also thinking, you know, should I go into this house? Should I fellowship with this Gentile, this Cornelius in the household? They were among the circumcised. They came with Peter. They were amazed because why? This gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This act of God superseded all of their ritualistic impositions in first century Judaism. Let's not forget, yeah? Christianity was not separate from Judaism back then. So they would have seen it as a seamless transition. And so they were also shocked, but they couldn't deny it. Maybe it's an act of God, what can we say? Why? What was it that, that made them so amazed? The gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing these Gentiles speaking in tongues and extolling God. Praising God is similar to the event in Pentecost in Acts 2, but this time it's not among the, the, the Jews. It's not even among those from Galilee. It is those who are Gentiles in Caesarea. And this is Peter's reaction. His eyes were already opened by then. He had realized already that you cannot call anything unclean that God has made clean anyone. You have to realize that God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. And this God has reached out. You could even say to nudge the church to realize the universal plan of the gospel message promised since the Old Testament, now being in motion, now being fulfilled. And so Peter, discerning what is going on, says in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing, baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days, presumably not only to fellowship, but to teach them more as Christ had taught and told the apostles to lay down his commands. Peter, really not, not interested in prioritizing his processes of whether this is legitimate because they, they didn't get baptized first, they didn't come and confess their sins to me first. No, not interested in that. He realizes that God had started the work. He now had to complete the accountability of it, get them to get baptized. So you see the sequence, if there are some of us who are really, really uh, bogged down by sequences of how we have to come to faith in Christ, God actually shows us that he works in his own way. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. Sure, they get baptized later. But the sequence of this is, is beautiful because God is actually shown to be the initiator of faith. Just three reflections for us uh, as we come to the uh, rather lengthy exposition of chapter 10, given that it is actually about 45 verses, so, uh, 47 verse, 48 verses. So you have to give it uh, a proper exposition. But three things. From the life of Cornelius, we see that there is no one that is beyond God's reach. For him to experience God's outright hand, reaching out to him, calling him by name, acknowledging him, showing him Jesus, even through a uh, at first reluctant Peter, we find that there is therefore no one beyond God's reach. What that means for us today in Malaysia is the same, actually. There are many who we know in this country who are calling out for the true God to reveal himself to them, who have some inkling of who Jesus Christ is. Pray for them, regardless of their race and cultural affiliation. 
pray and know that God loves them as much as he loves us, the church. And God is going to reach out to them because God knows each one of them by name. God acknowledges the good that they have done. And now God wants us, the church, to collaborate with him to show forth the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's something that must not be lost to us. Yeah? When the angel of God re- uh, appeared to Cornelius, he didn't preach the gospel to Cornelius. Do you know that? Do you realize that? The angel of God did not preach the gospel to Cornelius. Instead, he called Cornelius to send for Peter to do the job as the apostle, as the first eyewitness. Some of you thinking, hey, shouldn't it be the angel? You know, he's an angel being divine in that sense uh, or eternal in that sense. You know, the impact would have been greater, some would argue, but no. Peter and the church were given a particular task as the church is given a particular task today. As we teach the teachings of the apostles handed down by Jesus to them, to us, we are tasked with this collaboration. That as God reaches out in ways that are mysterious and supernatural and powerful and magnificent and amazing, the church is nevertheless given the task to be the mouthpiece of God in giving the good news of Jesus Christ. So firstly, we've talked about Cornelius, how no one is beyond God's reach. But secondly, this God who goes beyond, who goes, there's nothing that can hinder him, there's nothing that can stop him, there's nothing that can limit him in sharing the good news of who he is. He, at the same time, requires the church to collaborate with him, to preach the good news. And for Peter, therefore, we come to him, the second reflection. And I've hinted at this already. I just want to reiterate it. You do not have to wait to think that you're good enough before you preach the gospel. Uh, That is also a statement that needs to be checked because our being in the gospel is not due to our goodness. It's not because we thought we have achieved a certain level of decency with God. No, we are always a work in progress as Jesus is making us more more like him through the Holy Spirit. But for Peter, it is such a beautiful dynamic to know that as God works in him, in addressing his his uh, faulty implications of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in, in addressing, you know, one who is so mightily used by God for healing all that, but still had to be addressed in this issue of how to perceive other races, other people who are different from him. But the beautiful thing is that as God worked in Peter's life, God still used him mightily. As God worked in our lives today, addressing all our weaknesses, our flaws, things that we do, things that we believe in that are not in line with the kingdom of God. God does that even as he calls us to serve. In fact, God may be working in specific aspects of our life that need to be changed in order for us to serve in those areas and those things can happen concurrently as well. That is the beautiful thing about this passage. And that is something for us to take heart therefore. Don't be discouraged. It is all God at work in us. And as Peter experienced that humbling and yet such an enabling opportunity, we too experience that same humbling work in our life, humbling to ourselves, but at the same time empowered by God to do things to know that all oh, this is beyond our capacity. Thirdly, however, we must always have this above all, that it is all God. The way that God orchestrated events for Cornelius' household and Cornelius to meet with Peter and those accompanying Peter who are of the Jews, of the circumcision, the way that the Holy Spirit interrupted even his preaching in that sense to show that this is really all the act of God. For us, this is something we have to also ask ourselves. Do we do things as we serve and 
try and bluff ourselves think that this is all us doing it? Or are we cognizant of the fact that God is actually orchestrating events, bringing people into our lives, causing us to be taught, to be nurtured, to be molded in the way of Christ, even as the people, God brings people into our lives to preach the gospel, to show God's love. So wherever you are in this season, in whatever kind of ministry you're going through, whether in a family, on your own as an individual, whether in the church, whether in your neighborhood, in whatever way, recognize these things. There's no one beyond God's reach. God is going to reach out to them. But also know that God will use you to reach out to them to preach the gospel. There's a collaboration. And thirdly, it is all God's working. Don't feel overwhelmed, therefore. Don't feel discouraged. And if you have been idle, it's time to get up. Time to serve God. Not in your strength, not with your own resourcefulness, but participate, be part of God's orchestra, if I can use that word. He is the one who is orchestrating everything. So may you be blessed in this time. Know that the Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Jesus Christ to will and act in the way of Jesus in love, in compassion, and truth. Yield to him, be led by him. Let us pray. Father, for all that has been reflected and expounded on, and even questions for reflection and application, we ask, O oh God, that you continue to guide us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to see that you are indeed God of this world, and you want all peoples of the world, from all walks of life, all nations, all creeds, to come to faith in Jesus Christ through your church. Your church has been entrusted with this gospel to be proclaimed and to be lifted out the kingdom of God on earth. Help us, O oh God, as your church to be led by your spirit. And we know, Lord, that above all, you are orchestrating events. You are not a passive God. You're not a sleeping God. You are a God who is working every time. Help us, Lord, therefore, to discern your workings of bringing people into our lives or bringing opportunities to serve you. Help us to excitedly and obediently participate. Open our eyes even more and more, even as we serve you, especially through these difficult times. Let the love and truth of Christ shine brightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.